1776, the year which often crosses our minds when we think of the colonists' fight to earn our independence from the British crown. However, that's not exactly accurate. British forces were defeated in New England and driven from Boston in the spring of 1776, almost a year after the shot heard round the world was fired in Lexington, Massachusetts, in April 1775. There were many more battles yet to be fought, yet to be won, and some yet to be lost. The losses in Boston didn't dissuade the British forces because by the end of 1776, they'd captured parts of New York and set their sights on Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Taking Philadelphia would have been an enormous win for the British because at that time, Philly was the home to the Continental Congress. General George William Howe and his British troops took the long way to get to Pennsylvania, avoiding the Delaware River and eventually met up with General George Washington and the Continental Army along the Brandywine Creek. You may have heard of the Battle of Brandywine, and if you have, then you know Washington and his troops left the shores of the Brandywine licking their wounds. The Continental Army suffered twice the losses of Howe's troops, and this began a rumor mill among prominent colonists wondering if Washington was truly the man for the job. As if the loss at Brandywine wasn't bad enough, the Battle of Germantown just added insult to injury. It was after the Battle of Germantown that General Washington and his troops bunked down in Valley Forge for the winter. We're going to spend our time today in northwest Philadelphia, visiting Germantown. We'll talk a little more about the battle, the history of Germantown, and a famous residence with a most unusual name, where 240-year-old bloodstains mar the centuries-old hardwood floors. You can probably guess if we've got lingering blood in a house with a name like Grumblethorpe, there will be some lingering spirits too. Join me as we take a trip back through time hunting for ghosts in Germantown, Pennsylvania. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this twisted journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Germantown is a section of Philadelphia that borders the northwest suburbs of the city. Within Germantown is a tiny little area called Worcester. That's a name you'll hear quite a bit as we spend our time together today because of a very famous old house on Germantown Avenue, which was built by a man named John Worcester. John Worcester immigrated from the Heidelberg area in Germany to Philadelphia back in 1727. He was just 19 years old at the time. He'd recently lost his father, and his older brother Casper had been living in Philadelphia for 10 years. John Wister was a little boy when he'd last seen his brother. Today, if you were to take a cruise from the U.S. to Europe, you'd likely depart from the East Coast, and that trip could take you about a week. But almost 300 years ago, when John Wister made the journey, it took four months for his transatlantic crossing. Think about the conditions that probably existed on a ship Crossing the Atlantic for months, no facilities, little or no opportunity to bathe, the stench must have been horrific. John Wister settled in with his brother. He worked with him at a button factory owned by Casper Wister. 
But John wasn't satisfied just working for his brother. He wanted a business of his own. And within a few years, John Wister did incredibly well for himself. He is the colonist's version of the American dream. Before he turned 25, he'd achieved significant wealth as an importer and wine merchant. John bought his first property at 325 Market Street in Philadelphia. That area of Market Street is just a few blocks from Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell. It's across the street from the Ben Franklin Museum. But with all the businesses on that stretch of market, you'd really never know there was once a private home with ties to a haunted house 10 miles away. Like many Philadelphians in the 18th and 19th century, John Wister wanted a country home, a place where his growing family could get away from the hustle and bustle of the city. So in 1744, he built a large manor house on a tract of land he'd purchased years before out in Germantown. Now, at the time, this area wasn't considered part of Philadelphia. It was about a three-hour horse and carriage ride from his home on Market Street versus the 20 or so minutes it would take you to get there today. The wood and stone used to build his home came from the forest on the land around the property, an area that was eventually called Wister's Woods. Today, there's only about two acres of those woods attached to John Wister's big house on Germantown Avenue. It's a three-story colonial-style stone home. It has a courting door as well as a front door. And if the name doesn't give it away, well, the courting door is where gentlemen callers would come a-courting. They'd enter the home through a separate door to pay a visit to the young women who lived therein. John Wister and his second wife, Anna Catherine, had one child, a son named Daniel. He was born in 1739. Daniel and his wife, Lowry Jones, had five children by the time the British occupied Philadelphia. Four daughters and one son. Eventually, they went on to have a few more boys. But you can imagine when that second generation of Wisters born in America were living at the house in Germantown, that courting door got a workout. There are so many windows on every side of this house. One of the upstairs front windows is actually a door now, and it opens to a little balcony that looks like a tiny little widow's walk. The third floor rear of the home has beautiful dormer windows. Today, the exterior wood on the windows and doors and the storm cellar is painted a bright red. But prior to the property's restoration 60 years ago, the shutters on the first floor were white. There was no little balcony off that second floor window. And there were dormers in the front of the roof as well as the back. The front door used to be columned, but those small columns are gone today. John Wister's home was also known as John Wister's Big House during the 1700s, and it played a role in the Battle of Germantown in 1777. In the summer of 77, British General George William Howe was supposed to be in New York, supporting General John Burgoyne. But Howe didn't want to stay in New York. He wanted to capture Philadelphia, which in his mind also meant capturing the Continental Congress, because at the time, Philadelphia was the capital of our early colonies. If he could accomplish this, taking the city of Philly and capturing the members of our Continental Congress, Howe would be a hero to the British crown. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, General Howe left New York in August 1777, and he did this pretty much of his own volition. He had no intention of staying in New York, supporting General Burgoyne's troops. He took a very scenic route to Philadelphia because he wanted to avoid the Delaware River, which the Continental Army controlled. 
So he traveled all the way down to Maryland and then eventually came back up north and met up with George Washington in Brandywine. That sits in Chester County, Pennsylvania. There, how his generals and their troops handed Washington and his men their collective asses. Then they did it again in Germantown just a few weeks later. British troops arrived in Philadelphia in late September. General Howe left 3,000 men in the city, and he took the rest of his army, about 9,000 men, out to Germantown. The Worcester family left the city long before General Howe and his troops swept in. They spent the summer of 76 at their country house, John Worcester's big house in Germantown. But like so many Philadelphians and colonist sympathizers, they retreated even farther away from the city. They moved temporarily to a friend's house in North Wales, Pennsylvania. And we know this because 16-year-old Sally Wister, John Wister's granddaughter, and the oldest child of Daniel and Lowry Wister, kept a journal while she and her family stayed at a farm in North Wales. Sally's journal was a way to stay in touch with her friend Deborah Norris. During the British occupation in Philadelphia, the girls would have had no way to send letters to one another. So Sally journaled her experiences with the hope of giving the journal to her dear friend so that Deborah would know what happened in Sally's life while they were apart. Sally's very first journal entry was September 25th, 1777. I learned about Sally's journal while I was researching John Wister and his big house in Germantown, the history and the ghost stories. I stumbled upon a post online that read, Sally Wister's teenage diary was made ever more dramatic by the battles of the American Revolution taking place near her family's home. And I said, what? A teenage diary from a Quaker girl during the Revolutionary War? Please tell me this was published. Yes, it was. Sally Wister's journal was published in December 1902, and it has a wonderful introduction filled with commentary by a man named Albert Cook Myers. He's from Adams County, Pennsylvania. Myers graduated from Swarthmore College in 1898. That's in the suburbs of Philadelphia. In the 1900s, he spent decades researching and recreating the life of William Penn. Every aspect of his life, his private letters, his day-to-day goings-on, I learned so much about Albert Cook Myers while researching Sally Wister's journal that I could almost break into an entirely different storyline about him, but I will rein myself in, we'll save him for another episode. Okay, back to Sally Wister's journal and the Battle of Germantown. In her first entry, Sally writes, Though I have not the least shadow of an opportunity to send a letter, if I do write, I will keep a sort of journal of the time, that I may expire before I see thee. The perusal of it may sometime hence give pleasure in a solitary hour to thee and our Sally Jones. That was September 25th, 1777, the same day the British took Philadelphia. About two weeks later, on October 4th, General George Howe again met up with General George Washington in the Battle of Germantown. Washington went into that battle with what many historians call a flawed and ill-fated strategy. George Washington believed if he approached Howe's British forces from all sides, the Continental Army would have a good shot at defeating Howe and reclaiming Philadelphia. Okay, so this was Washington's plan. There were four main roads that led to Germantown. So General Washington divided his forces into four columns. He split them up, which basically shrunk them. The troops had to march over 15 miles to get into Germantown. They did this overnight, in the dark. Each approached from separate directions with the goal of attacking before dawn. As if that wasn't difficult enough, 
The early morning hours were filled with such a dense fog. It was hard for the Continental Army to distinguish between themselves and the British. While two of the attacks were initially successful, one arrived late because they got lost marching in the dark, and another got turned around and fired on their own men. It wasn't hard for Howe, his generals, and the British troops to fend off Washington's attack. Like the Battle of Brandywine, this was another loss for General Washington. Between Brandywine and Germantown, the Continental Congress started to wonder whether Washington was really the right man to lead their military forces. Now, even though the British won the Battle of Germantown, they too suffered casualties. And this is where we see the connection between the Worcester family's summer home and the Revolutionary War. The British didn't just occupy Philadelphia. They occupied the homes in and around the city, not just here, but everywhere, as did the Continental Army. One home occupied by the British was John Wister's big house in Germantown. Three days before the battle, British Brigadier General James Agnew took possession of the Wister house. This was his last home, because on the morning of October 4th, 1777, General Agnew died on the parlor floor. I've read a few different accounts of how Agnew was shot. One stated he rode out ahead of his men in the early morning. He was caught by surprise by Washington's men because of the fog, and when he turned around to flee, he was shot in the back. Another report described a skirmish between the Continental Army and Agnew's troops as they marched up Germantown Avenue, and Agnew took a bullet during the fray. In a letter dated March 8, 1778, from General Agnew's servant Alexander Andrew to Agnew's widow, Alexander wrote the general was about 500 yards from the enemy, the Continental Army, when he was shot multiple times. Andrew further wrote, and this is a quote from his letter, the fatal ball entered the small of his back, near the back seam of his coat, right side, and came out below his left breast. Another ball went through his right hand. Brigadier General Agnew was mortally wounded in the Battle of Germantown. He was dragged or carried, depending on the report, back to the Worcester House by his servant, Alexander Andrew, and he died soon after being shot. His wounds were severe. He bled so much on the hardwood floor of the parlor. I don't know how long the blood pooled on the floorboards and soaked into the wood, but no amount of scrubbing over the last 240 years has been able to remove the bloodstains. That's right, the blood of a British general killed during the Battle of Germantown stains the floors in John Wister's house to this day. I was talking to Jeremy and my daughter about all of this last night, and one of the things that Jeremy said is, well, I bet you could sand those stains out. But think about it, that wood is over 240 years old. The Wister house remained in the family for about 200 years, and I would imagine none of the family members really wanted to tear up floorboards that were put in by their grandfather or their great-grandfather, wood that came from the trees that surrounded their house. And the fact that they didn't means we've got a pretty cool legend about those bloodstains. The British spent about nine months in Philadelphia. Sally Wister's journal mirrors that timeline. It was her family's time in exile, both from their home in Germantown and the home where Sally was born on Market Street. I absolutely delighted in reading Sally Wister's journal. You can buy her journal online. It's on Amazon. You can get a paper copy like I did. You can get it on Kindle. And please ignore the reviews. Some people who reviewed this journal clearly forgot it was the writings of a 16-year-old girl. 
I don't care if it's 1777 or 2019. When a heterosexual teenage girl sees a handsome young man in uniform, she might get a little giddy. If you're expecting some historical tome, this isn't it. It's a nine-month-long letter to her best friend, another heterosexual teenage girl. A few weeks after Sally Wister began her journal, the Continental Army from Maryland arrived in North Wales, and they set up residence at the Folk House, the farmhouse where Sally and her family stayed while the British occupied Philadelphia. The arrival of these men was scary and exciting. There were officers in the house and militia in tents all over the grounds outside. One particular young officer caught Sally Wister's eye. 19-year-old William Stoddard, a major in the Army and nephew of General Smallwood who led the Maryland troops. Just one day after their arrival, Sally wrote, Well, here comes the glory, the major, so bashful, so famous. He should come before the captain, but never mind. I at first thought the major cross and proud, but I was mistaken. He is about 19, nephew to the general, and acts as major of brigade to him. He cannot be extolled for the graces of a person, but for those of the mind he may justly be celebrated. He is large in his person, manly, and an engaging countenance and address. She is checking him out, and she's letting her friend Deborah know he was all right on the eyes and smart too. It's just so real thinking of this young girl in her petticoats telling her friend about which dress she wore, choosing something a bit more mature and less girlish while these officers boarded with her family. I know you can see it. On October 21st, Sally wrote a very descriptive entry about young Major Stoddard. I have heard strange things of the Major, worth a fortune of 30,000 pounds, independent of anybody. The Major, moreover, is vastly bashful, so much so he can hardly look at the ladies. Excuse me, good sir, I really thought you were not clever. If tis bashfulness only, we will drive that away. Fifth day, sixth day, seventh day passed. The General still here, the Major still bashful. The Maryland Army stayed less than two weeks at the Folk House with the Wisters. On November 1st at around 2 p.m., Sally wrote in her journal, the general and the major said goodbye to her family. She said her family's hearts were full and she believed the major was affected. Sally and her family took a last look at them as they mounted their horses and began to ride out. But young, agreeable Major Stoddard rode back and you could just imagine Sally's heart raced thinking he was coming back for her. But sadly, he forgot his pistols. The general's nephew, a major in the Continental Army, left his guns upstairs in his room and had to double back for them. I'll tell you Sally Wister does see Major William Stoddard again, but I don't want to tell you how or when in case you decide to buy her journal. Sally Wister wasn't a very committed writer. There are few entries in December, absolutely none in January. In fact, at one point she wrote that everything was dull and she decided to hang up her pen until there was something newsworthy to share with her friend Deborah. In late February, there's an entry about visiting officers from Virginia and Maryland. Sally wrote, I dare say thee is impatient to know my sentiments of the swains. Howard has very few external charms indeed. I cannot name one. Jameson is tall and manly, a comely face, dark eyes and hair. 
seems to be much of a gentleman, no ways deficient in point of sense, or at least in the course of events I discovered none. And then the next entry doesn't occur until May 11th, 1778. She didn't write for months, but sometimes that happens when you're journaling. I've been in that situation myself. When I go back to keeping a journal, it's robust and filled with entries, and then it slows down. And then after a few months, I find myself tossing it across the room after a shitty day. Sally Wister attributed her lack of writing to a scarcity of paper, but I think it was a combination of the paper shortage and maybe a scarcity in her commitment to journaling once the handsome young officers were gone. The Wister family returned to Philadelphia in July 1778. Although the British left the city in late June, the Wister's return was delayed because one of Sally's younger sisters was ill and unable to travel. Sally's grandfather John, who built a fortune and a mansion for his family, died in 1789. In 1793, the Wisters lived full-time at the house in Germantown during the yellow fever epidemic that ravaged the city of Philadelphia. Sometime in the 1790s, Sally Wister and her family took up permanent residence in John Wister's big house in Germantown, the house where British Brigadier General James Agnew bled out on the parlor floor. Sally lived there until she passed away at the age of 42 in 1804. Her friend Deborah Norris didn't receive Sally's journal until 1830, when Sally's brother Charles found his sister's girlhood friend and loaned her Sally's journal. Throughout most of this episode, you've heard me refer to the Wister property on Germantown Avenue as John Wister's big house. That's what it was called in the 1700s. But Charles Wister, one of Sally's brothers, renamed the property Grumblethorpe after reading that term in the book Thinks I to Myself, published in 1811. Today, Grumblethorpe is a historic house museum and a horticultural marvel maintained by the Philadelphia Society for the Preservation of Landmarks, featuring a two-acre garden and urban farm, a chicken and rose garden, yes, chickens and roses. There are beehives and an orchard. Grumblethorpe runs an elementary education program with hands-on workshops for area schools. The oldest ginkgo biloba tree in the entire U.S. stands in the gardens at Grumblethorpe. It was planted by John Wister. Wisteria bushes are named after John Wister. His grandson, Charles, Sally's brother, was famous for handcrafting scientific tools and his overall knowledge of science. A weather diary that Charles maintained while he was alive is still used today to declare the hottest and coldest days on record in Philadelphia. If you visit Grumblethorpe, almost everything you see inside was owned by generations of the Wister family. Antiques like Charles Wister's tool chest, the furniture in Sally Wister's bedroom, and the desk where Owen Wister wrote the novel The Virginian are all on display at Grumblethorpe. What isn't on display, yet occasionally seen by visitors and employees, are the ghosts of Grumblethorpe. The most obvious ghost is that of British Brigadier General James Agnew. In April 2013, during a ghost tour and celebration of Walpurgisnacht, which is a German holiday that some say celebrates the halfway point to Halloween, but really is a springtime festival designed to drive away evil spirits. Two guests at Grumblethorpe claimed they picked up significant temperature changes in the area around those 240-year-old bloodstains. According to guest Kelly Silverman, the temperature in the house was around 70 degrees. When she entered the parlor where General Agnew died, she felt an immediate draft and the temperature there was 16 degrees colder than the rest of the house. 
only 54 degrees. There are reports of a black mist swirling around in the air above Agnew's bloodstains. In a 2017 interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer, Grumblethorpe educational officer Diana Thompson told reporters she saw a black shape moving very quickly from the dining room into that parlor. She said the shape spun very low to the ground as it moved. According to Thompson, when the shape moved into the parlor, she said, I'm not in the mood for this. And it disappeared. Thompson also told the Inquirer, there's a legend. If you're in the house alone at dusk, you can hear moaning coming from the parlor. She isn't the only person at Grumblethorpe to see this black shape. Her son has also seen a shape like this moving throughout the house. Most of the volunteers and employees at Grumblethorpe make sure they're gone before darkness falls. A volunteer at Grumblethorpe named Kelly Alsup told the Inquirer reporters she saw the shadow of a woman in a dress. Kelly, Diana Thompson, and another woman working at Grumblethorpe were on the second floor of the house during the day. Sun beamed through the windows and cast shadows on the walls and the floor. There were only three women in that room, but a fourth shadow appeared, and that one wore a dress, yet all of the women in the room wore jeans. Another spirit which is believed to haunt Grumblethorpe is a young woman named Justina who worked for the Wister family. According to some reports, Justina stayed behind in Philadelphia during the yellow fever epidemic in 1793. Legend says one night the Wister girls, Sally and her sisters, saw Justina in their bedroom late at night, and that was shocking to them as they knew she was at their home on Market Street in Philadelphia. The next morning, the family received word Justina died the night before. She fell victim to yellow fever. Justina's spirit is often seen around Grumblethorpe after sunset, and some people claim they can smell fresh bread when she's around, as if it just came out of the oven. There are other stories about Justina that describe her as a young girl, an orphan who was cared for by the Wister family, and that she died at Grumblethorpe in the 1800s, not in Philadelphia as a result of yellow fever. There are all sorts of special events throughout the year at Grumblethorpe and other parts of Germantown. Every year, the town hosts a revolutionary Germantown festival and battle reenactment. This year, the event is on October 5th, 2019 at Cliveden Mansion, which we will talk about in the next episode, part two of the Ghosts of Germantown. I'll tell you more about the Germantown Festival and the Battle Bash held at Grumblethorpe in the next episode. And of course, there will be reminders in our episode about great activities to explore in the fall later this year. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.